Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Hello there. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Special guest today, Miss Carolyn Hennessy. Carolyn is a, a rather Renaissance personality, a little bit of everything, writer, actress, performer, author. We're going to try to delve into a little bit of who she is, where she's going, and where she's been. Welcome to Seldom Said, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. And I just, I love my background. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I don't think I was ever more adorable. Really. I just don't think I was. <laughs> if you were to turn around right now and ask that little person a question, what would it be? The question would be, do you really think think you have to spend your early years taking everything so personally. Don't. Oh, God. Just don't. Just don't. But of course, at this age, it's it's only personal. It's every it's, you know, it's only personal. You know, it's all the wounds, all the all the great, you know, the slashes and the burns. Is that's what we mm. you know, that's what we with us. Um, which is one of the things that I tried to address. I tried to speak to her, actually a little older than her, um, in writing the Pandora series, because, you know, we get hurt from the time we're smacked on the bottom, you know, in the, in the delivery room. And if we don't kind of settle those, if we don't settle those affairs, if we don't really try and exorcise all of that pain, we take it with us into adulthood, which is why therapists will never run out of business. But, but I tried to exercise for myself. So. Rather marvelous, you would say all these things. Uh, obviously, I sent you a number of questions. The only reason I use those is that the first guests I had were Syrian dissidents, and they were so nervous about their names being used. So basically, I send out questions. But as with something like this, picture in the background and your statements just now, there's a tendency for creative interviewing to just throw them away. Just let them go. Let them go. Let's, let's see where this goes. It's going to be someplace fabulous. Every artist I've ever interviewed, whether they're screen, cinema, movie, whatever the case might be, there is this mention of therapy. There is this mention of filling an empty space why do you feel that's the case? For for precisely the reasons that I would that I would address with with this one behind me, um, we are so we do not know our own magnificence. Certainly not at that age. Very <sighs> rarely at this age, we simply are are unaware of our own electricity, of our own output of what we have to contribute and, and for everybody it's unique it's it's incredibly unique um which which kind of leads me on to a story that an acting teacher told once which i which just just remind me about joan darling because if i forget but it's 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 because we are slashed and burned our parents do the best they can most of the time or at least we think they do we hope they do but very often it falls short because of their because of their psychological makeup and the fact that many of them never had that addressed. Um, I believe me, if my mother had gone to therapy, I you know might have been might have been great for everybody concerned. Do you know what I mean? And my father as well. But it's also society, school kids, our teachers, who we think have our best interest, who we think are our friends. And sometimes they are, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And when you're sensitive, like I was, and grew up in a, in a sort of a sensitive household, in a sensitive industry, the motion picture industry, um, with the father who was a production designer and an aunt, my mother's older sister, who was a fairly famous actress, Barbara Rush, seeing, seeing both sides, knowing what I really wanted to do from the age of four, probably around this age, having visited a soundstage for the first time in my life, you know, you take that, you take it all with you. 
being a sensitive, being, being a sensitive individual. And if you don't, if you don't try and work it out in your youth and no one ever does, no one ever does because at 13, 14, 15, you've got the world by the tail. You think, you know, everything you don't want to, you don't even want to associate with your parents. You don't, you just want to associate with your friends and do things that are taboo and things, you know, you're going to get in trouble for. And then you take all of it with you. You take it all with you. And so that's why therapists are there, whatever discipline you choose to employ for yourself or your therapist chooses to employ for you. Because very few of us are really healthy, healthy logically, healthy emotionally. And, in, and we might be healthier in some aspects than in others. But I think it's, I think that's why I think the greatest actors and actresses are the best psychologists. Because we're a, we, and I, or I should, let's say they, or I'll just say we, why not? Okay, false, me, a little, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to be humble. Okay, um, we, we, um, we delve, we psychologically unpack our characters, something we are very, very often don't do with ourselves, but we can psychologically unpack our so that's it. It's 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 the need filling the need for therapy. The need for therapy is to fill, is to is to salve over the wounds, and 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 scab them over and scar them over and make that and make and make make ourselves tougher and healthier. There's a marvelous poem written by a woman named Marie Williamson. I've repeatedly heard it read by a folk singer named Odetta, who I really admired growing up. But the first line is, perhaps we are not afraid of being inferior, but afraid of being powerful beyond measure. Is conceit a necessity in this theatrical profession? Conceit is not. Conceit is not. Never. But ego is. Mm. But it's the right kind of ego and it's healthy ego. It is the ego that says, that, that allows you to walk, onto a stage or in front of a camera and mentally draw a chalk circle and stand in it and say, lightning's gonna strike right here. And all of you are gonna pay attention. And I'm, I might be saying somebody else's words, but it's coming through me and my experience, good and bad, and what I can impart to you. So, so pay attention, that's what that's that's the kind of ego that is that is that is required unless you want to you know just be some sort of shrinking violet and <sighs> and that's not me and it's not it's not any of the greats that I have worked with they all walk onto stage and draw chalk circles and say lightning will strike and I'm going to be the conduit that's the ego that's required the ego that says my I'm I'm, my opinion outside of the acting arena um, on things I may know nothing about, but, but it feels good at the time. My opinion is the thing you should follow. That's the ego that I think needs to be, I, that I try to divest myself of. The ego that um, I am, that I'm a better human than anybody else. That, uh, that I know more than anybody else. That my power is more powerful than anybody else's beyond measure. That kind of ego um, is what I, I, I try to divest myself of. That's fascinating. There is a marvelous quote attributed to uh, Laurence Olivier. He was appearing with Dustin Hoffman in Marathon Man. Hoffman said, I can't find my motivation. And Olivier simply responded by saying, just act, young man, just yes. act. Yes. Yeah. Is it that easy for those who have it? It. I well, you know, Spencer Tracy said the same thing. Stand, you know, hit your mark and say your line. Hmm. Uh, I think that at that point, let's face it, Tracy, the VA, now Hoffman. I'm, I might, I might say, had so much experience under their belts had so many ways of unpacking their toolkit and knowing this goes here and I can use a wrench over here and I can use this over here and this over here, that it becomes not um, rote, 
but certainly much easier. You know the pattern, you know how you're going to work. Olivia used to work from the outside in. I mean, apparently there's a, there's a from what I've been able to, to research, he worked from the nose. He like found the character's nose and then worked inward. But there are those who work inside out. You know, you look at, you look at um, Stanislavski and, and Adler, uh, you know, and, and what they taught. So it's all different, but it becomes with enough experience, certain th things. I mean, I still get stage fright when I'm about to go on. The last, the last play that I did, which was Masterclass, which I, in which I played Maria Callas, that's the only time where I not only did not get stage fright in my umpteen years of life on this planet, but was like a racehorse ready to get onto that stage. Mm. But, 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 but before that, it was there, you know, yes, of course you still get stage fright. You still are, you still are nervous. Are you going to be able to, commu to communicate the things that you want the audience to get from you in that two hour period or in that moment in front of the camera? But I think um, things, things do become easier, but listen, with every, with every character, it's still a challenge. I am asked to play a lot of characters that have kind of the same underpinnings but they're, but they're all different. They're all different individuals. What makes one supremely snarky and evil is not the same thing that makes the other supremely snarky and evil. Mm -hmm. So you have to really delve into that. So things become easier, but things are still a challenge. Mention Masterclass playing Maria Callas. Someone that intense, have you ever feared that you would leave too much of yourself in the performance? There wasn't enough of me. I mean, I, I was, it was all there. It was all there. It was all, all on the stage. Mm. And her, through me, was all on the stage. And the greatest thing was that I felt, sorry, that's my, my little puppy. All the jangling is my little puppy. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Um, there was none of her that walked off the stage with me. Let's put it that way. All of her was left on that stage, and considering I was the conduit, so much of me, because because so much of me as actress agreed 150% with what Terence McNally had Maria Callas saying. And, you know, he took so much of, of, of Masterclass from the series of Juilliard interviews, uh, uh, Juilliard Masterclasses, that, that she did. So some of what he put down for her to say, which was, cruel and brutal and brilliant mm. and uplifting and so, so shockingly true. I don't care what field you're in. It, it, was, it was a joy to be able to say it every night. And, and, and she, has, she has her version of what I call the chalk circle. And it's, you have to make the audience believe that for that precise moment in time, yours is the only voice worth listening to. Yours is the only truth. And they must get it. They must understand it. Because, and if they believe that, they will understand you. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the same as, as, as the chalk circle. So, so Carolyn was left on stage every night because Carolyn believed. Carolyn understood. Mm. And Carolyn agreed. And, and Carolyn's DNA was changed. By, by uttering the words that, that McNally has, has Callas saying, because they're all true. I do remember hearing her sing Butterfly and oh. just rising out of my chair without getting up. It was one of those things. I love quotations. Tony Randall, who was an opera buff, commented on her and said she was marvelous at the beginning, but at the end, she would flick a kerchief across her face she would try to cover a certain vulnerability or weakness. Richard Dreyfuss was once asked, uh, what did you want to be? And he said, I wanted to be a star and I became a star, but I wish I would have become an actor. actor. Yeah. Is there a danger in being just a, a projected affectation? Well, let us not forget that Carlos in her prime was watching lightning. Mm. It was watching a lightning strike and she knew it. 
she knew it. And so as the voice, and, and she, she never wanted to admit, I mean, because believe me, I've read every book I've seen, every performance, and, um, and she never wanted to admit that her voice was going. And also, let's, let's face it, uh, the affair with Aristotle and Nassus, that it devastated her. It devastated her, and she allowed it to devastate her on, on a creative level. So allowing that, she could never get back to lightning. People came to see Kalas. And they and they left having seen her. They did not see her in her prime, and she knew it. And it, it and it killed her so much. So much affected her, and she allowed it to affect her on on a kind of a, on a molecular level that she didn't want that that, that the, the handkerchief across the face was her way of trying to get back to you know the 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 you know the the, the la traviata the um the, the tosca the incredible tosca mm. when when she's when she and, and she couldn't get it back no matter how much because she'd had all that life experience behind her and and i, I oh you're still there okay good something has just appeared on my screen but that's all right I, i'm, I'm talking i'll talk to you now um she couldn't get it back because she had too much experience behind her and so so the flicking of the handkerchief across the face was her attempt not to be a rejected affectation, was to still matter. She didn't understand intrinsically how much she still mattered to everybody at whatever stage she was in. Carolyn, if I so may. There's a huge danger in it. If I may, Carolyn, that's the countdown to her first station break. Oh, oh. I find what you just said incredibly poignant. I really am trying to emotionally get my arms around it to be that vulnerable, to be that frightened, to be that aware of the inevitability of life, and yet not being able to find what made you great. I'd love to come back and discuss that Certainly. in regard to Callus or any other character you've played. Certainly. This is going in a direction we hadn't intended, but as you say, there are roads uh, amply traveled. We'll be back in a moment. The program is seldom said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. We're returning. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Our special guest, Ms. Carolyn Hennessy, who is a devotee of the arts and shows it in her performances and in her conversation. Carolyn, again, uh, do you find it as poignant and as tragic as perhaps I seem to do at the moment? She was so marvelous. And then she was a bifurcated jewel. Well, here's the thing. I also think she chose it. She chose to be distressed. Mm. She, in, in, as, from what I am given to understand, from what my interpretation of Kalas, from everything I've read and listened to and watched, she reveled in being distressed, in being so, so petal-like that you could place her in the palm of your hand and just crumple her like that. Mm. And, and yet, I think she always, up until the end, felt that she had this resilience that she would, she would kind of spring anew, you know, not like a phoenix, but like you know, that, that petal, you know, kind of rolling, rolling time backwards. But there was a part of her that believed that being crushed only only hollowed out the gourd of yourself deeper. That it just that, that there was it just it just you know it it you made you dig deep 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 until there was and again she, and she was one who never left anything of herself and never left anything she left it all on the stage is what I'm trying to say. Um, so she chose that life because it was explained to her. There were people who said, you, you know, you, you've got to pull back. You've got to take a rest. You've got to take a vacation. No, 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 I must go on. Mm. So I think she understood that possibly she was not long for this world, but what she left 
was of far greater value than if she lived to be 80, if, if, if that makes any sense. That she, she she's like magician's flash paper. She burned like this, you know, and then she was gone. But what she left, the canon of what she left, there's never any, there's, there's nothing else like it. There are purer voices. Montserrat Caballé has, has a, has a, has a, to, to watch, to watch, to watch her sing some of the same arias that, that, that Carlos sing. It's, it's flawless, but Carlos took you inside. Mm. And so watching, watching somebody like Caballé, who I love, watching her face, it's beautiful. And you can, you can paint kind of anything on it that you want. And the tone, the, the tone is, again, it's, it's flawless. But Carlos brought you into the world and, and, and gave you a seat at the table. Have and, you ever, and, and eat. Have you ever looked across a stage or a movie set and found someone who is burning that intently? Uh, I'm remembering at the moment in your speaking, uh, Edith Piaf, yeah, just leaving so much on there. Have you ever worked with someone where you just said, my God, there's nothing left. There's a shadow. Yeah. Yes, yes. Marion Seldes. Huh. Marion Seldes, who, un, unbeknownst to her, I, 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 I understudied at the Mark Taper Forum. Um, tongue, it was called Tongue of a Bird, and it had Diane, Diane Venora, Cherry Jones, Marion Seldes. I mean, we're talking powerhouses. And I was understudying Sharon Lawrence, uh, also a powerhouse. And got to work with Marion um, in rehearsal. And she did not know it at the time, but years before I had met her when she was doing Three Tall Women in New York and my aunt and I had gone to see it and she was playing B. And it was fascinating to me because I spent the first, and I will, yes, yes. So yes, Marion Seldes, that's the answer to your question, but here's my story and watching her. I watched started watching three tall women and for the first five minutes you i wanted to i wanted to stab myself through the eyes i could not stand it could not stand this play had no idea why to this day but after about five minutes watching seldes i went i just settled in and i went oh this is one of the most remarkable plays and performances by her that i've ever seen in my life in my life i was riveted then big surprise to me my aunt says we're going to go backstage and meet her and it's like ah happy day went backstage and marion comes flying down a set of iron stairs she knows my aunt she rushes to my aunt she grabs my aunt's face i'm not even there i mean nobody else is in the room and she grabs my aunt my aunt's face and she goes did you like it did you like it it's wonderful isn't isn't it a wonderful play it's just so exciting and and mm. it, I, Aren't we lucky, Barbara? Aren't we lucky we get to be doing what we want to do and doing what we want to do? And I watched her and I went, well, now this is odd. She's, I'm not, she's not even acknowledging anybody else in the room. And I'm, I'm standing not six inches away. And I thought, well, this is sort of, this is sort of an affected individual. And then my aunt, my aunt turned and said, this is my niece, Carolyn. She's also an actress and Marion to me and like a laser bee she focused on me and she said yes I know I can see I can see you're one of us I can see you're one of us and Incredible. I just went oh, and I, I I literally I literally it was like it was like it was like a, a sh uh, like a, a tectonic plates my my soul plates shifted slightly and I went oh, oh oh I have to know I have to know everything about you so I bought books and I bought again about Marion Seldes and then years later working with her at the taper was able to stand across from her <laughs> and go yep yep it's there and I am closer now than I've ever been in a, on, a, on, a, on a professional level and she was so kind and sh I watched her speak to audiences you know, in the talkbacks after the, after the shows. And she was just, she was just genius. So mm. watching her and, and, and thinking, I'm sharing a stage with someone who is a creative idol for me 
and, and seeing that it's absolutely true. The fire is there. The passion is there. The gratitude for being one of the lucky ones that gets to do what they want for living. And how rare is that? You know, and, and so, so yes, Marion Seldes. And Cherry Jones, she was no small potatoes. I was watching her. Was kind of fun too. Now you're an author, as well as yeah. an actress and performer. Have you ever, Carolyn, written while you're acting or living? Hemingway always talked about writing short stories while he was having breakfast. Have you ever found yourself writing while you were simply being? What you mean? I'm, I'm assuming you meant you mean like writing in my head while I'm on stage or in front of a camera or writing while you're on stage in front of the camera or simply crossing the street to get a bus. Well, crossing the street. Oh yes. Yes. Absolutely. All the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually not while I'm on stage because I'm a little more focused. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I, 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 sometimes I'll wonder if I left the iron on, but, but very often, but that's rare. But, uh, (laughs) but yeah, usually not when I'm, not when I'm in front of the camera. Very often, when I'm waiting, when I'm in a when when I'm in my my director's chair, waiting to go on camera, because the lives of those around me, the crew, are very special to me, and and I and I, and I just adore them. And sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll take a piece from someone or a, a moment that I see, you know, from something else, and I'll and I'll put it uh, on and I'll. Maybe I'll just, you know, I'll just jot it down. Nothing really with regard to the book series, with regard to Pandora, because that takes place in, you know, ancient Greece. Yes. Uh, uh, and my protagonists are three 13-year-old girls, one of whom being, one of whom is Pandora, who it's a retelling of the classical Greek myth. And so she's your kind of modern day, every girl who just happens to live, you know, two and a half, two, two point five, two thousand years ago. And, and, um, and so, so there wasn't, there's not, a, there wasn't a lot that I made, I was kind of able to take from the world around me, except to put it in as kind of flavoring for the, for the sort of the universal tone of, of, of the world. But, um, but for other stories, yes, in fact, I'm actually working on a novel for adults as opposed mm. to a novel. Uh, now and I uh, and I do. I find myself writing on you know in the car. I find myself writing, uh, watching you know South Park <laughs> or something. <else. laughs> Absolutely jotting jotting down things. Sure. Has that story told of Sandberg that he when he passed was found with little snippets of poetry in his pockets? I know I personally have the fear of forgetting a line and not putting it on page, and it's the middle of the night, and should I get up and grab my pencil? Do you self-edit? Do I, do I self-edit on paper or in life, in conversation? Either. On paper or when creating? No, 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 I don't. No, mm. no, the job of the writer is to get it all out. And, and writing... That's 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 your job. That's job one, but writing for me is actually rewriting, and I have a pretty good sense of where I want things to go. Like for instance, book one just basically wrote itself. I had an A, B, and C for the ending, and then things happened in between, and I went there. But I also can I I know fairly quickly when something isn't going to work out and I stop I take it off the page I then I then but but that but that's but that's fairly rare that's fairly rare because usually I will I will bullet point it and then if something wants if someone wants to go a different way I go with them I go with them and I see what happens and it's usually I would say 95 percent of the time it's where I it's where it should have gone all, all along as you just said your writing is illustrative it's simply there there isn't the feeling of any loose ends. The loose ends have to be, I would imagine, in the reader. What is your methodology in putting pen to page? It, it's, it, it varies. It really does. Um, when I 
was writing Pandora. The first book took six weeks. That's it, six weeks. Mm -hmm. But it was writing a thousand words a day, minimum. That was the goal. And that's roughly four pages. And at the end of six weeks, if you can write four pages a day, you've got, you know, a thousand words a day. You've got you've got the beginnings, the the, the a serious body for your for for the for the first draft of a novel. Other times when I writing writing the next the, the second book took uh, eighteen months to then get get into, and sometimes I would write for hours at a time. Sometimes it would be days before I would come back to the computer because I do not write longhand. I write on the computer. Sometimes I'd write for 20 minutes, get up, make a tuna sandwich, and be gone for three hours. Sometimes I would write, I would write well into the night. So it would, it would be when inspiration struck. Fortunately, when I was writing Pandora, inspiration struck a great deal. And my, 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 I have to say, you know, it's three, it's three in the morning. You gonna come to bed? Uh, and I'd say, I just, I just have to finish this chapter. And then I, then of course I make him sit up and read it, uh, which I'm sure thoroughly appreciated. Um, <laughs> so it, so it, the methodology is is different. It's different. Um, sometimes I'd go without breakfast, um, or or eat at my computer. But it's when inspiration struck, and fortunately for Pandora, because I was having the time of my life writing it. Really. And oh my gosh, I was having more fun than anyone. Who's ever going to read it? I was, mm. and I was, and I, I was, I was crying, and I was hysterical with laughter, and I would be, I would be so, so sort of tickled with myself when I would write something that a character would say that would be something that I would have said at thirteen, because don't forget, it's very cathartic. It was very cathartic for me and for this one right here, to mm. be able to go back and get it all out, get it all on paper. It's the most in control I have ever felt. And and I work when I I work with a with a with it with a charitable organization that deals with eating disorders. And I was asked to speak about the creative process and how it might help people with eating disorders. And I said, okay. So I shot a little video and I said, it's the most, we know that eating eating disorders, many most most disorders are are, thing, are issues about control certainly eating disorders, and the feeling of the lack of control. And I said, you want to feel in control? Write a book, write a short story, keep a journal, create worlds, create characters, create visions, create dialogue, and no one can ever take it away from you. No one. Doesn't, don't even write it to get published, but you never know. But you are all, you are the supreme being of that world that you create. And that is that is a measure of control that you can have. And so I, I, of course I, I felt I felt incredibly in control when I was writing Pandora. And then of course you get into the editing process and I had to decide what edits, what am I gonna take for the team? What am I gonna, what are the hills I'm gonna die on? What is a really great edit suggested by my incredible editor, you know, at Bloomsbury. Um, so that so writing is often rewriting, but for me, I I kind of got it out and was and was happy and satisfied, and um, and then would work with an editor. But yeah, I tickled myself when I when I wrote Pandora, and she's fun. She's tons of fun. It'll bring out it'll bring out the thirteen year old girl in one, and believe me, that needs to be brought out. Yeah, we often sexually identify the 13-year-old girl and everyone, the 14-year-old boy and everyone. We're about to enter into that second break. Uh, this is going too smoothly in that there are a thousand and one things I could ask and answers I could relish. <laughs> I would be curious when we come back, I, I constantly hear the words inspiration and genius. I hear them about people who shovel my walk and I hear them about people who create majestic pieces. When we come back, I'd love to have your definition of both terms, inspiration and what it means to inspire, and genius. And in point of fact, you've mentioned you, mend, you met one, or perhaps many. I would be curious of your uses of that term and whether you think it's overdone. And we paint with such a broad brush, our palette is clogged. 
We'll be back in a moment. Uh, the program is seldom said. Our very special guest is Miss Carolyn Hennessy. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. Seldom Said, the program. Special guest, Miss Carolyn Hennessy, who is telling us great and wondrous things and placing us on the track to lead a better life. Oh. Carolyn, those two terms, inspiration, genius. Give us your off-the-cuff definition. Inspiration is what everyone, inspiring is what everyone needs to strive to be. You have the right to call yourself inspiring. And that is what you need to be, I think, in every aspect of your life. Inspiring to the the generations coming up, inspiring to those who might not know what you know, but inspire them to go and learn, inspire inspire people to uh, have epiphanies, and I have been called inspiring, and it is without question the best thing that anyone ever says to me. The books they find inspiring, uh, the performances they find inspiring. That's great because you know that you are, if, you're, if your moral compass is pointing north, you're inspiring others to greater heights than they may even feel that they can attain. Like, like the Williamson quote, genius, genius is, it, it, genius is tricky. It's very, very tricky because it's what I think others should say about you. And is it overused? Pro- absolutely, absolutely. Just the way the words, the word awesome is overused. Um, when you are in the presence of genius, it's, I would say half and half. Half, half, of, half of them know it. Half, genius, half, half the geniuses know what they are. The other half don't. When you're in the presence of genius, your, 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 your molecular structure changes. Your, your DNA shifts. If you, if you allow that genius to touch you, if you allow a work of art, if you allow it, if, you, if all the slots line up in the matrix and the arrow gets through and you allow their intention, again, if the moral compass is north, if you allow their intention to, to get to, to, to infiltrate into your soul, then you become better for it. You become you become the better person, and and very often then you be, you can be more inspiring. So that's that's the definition of genius. What is it? Was what is it? Was it a Supreme Court judge who said it, the definition of pornography is I I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. Yes, that's genius. Because what is genius to one? is not necessarily genius to others unless you unless unless you kind of have a, a, a mass awakening like the works of Vincent van Gogh. Callas. Genius I, I would I'd venture to say that genius is letting God, as you understand him, her or it, speak through you. That's that's what it means to to you know to that's that's what as far as I'm concerned genius means which also verges or can verge this. There are characters you've played that flirt with indefinite perceptions. Gloria, do you feel that there are enough strong female roles out there where one can partake of their own personal geniusness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any role you play can be a strong female role if you have the backbone, if you have the, the strong female playing. I mean, don't forget, if you look at, if you look at Norma Shearer in the Barretts of Wimpole Street, mm. playing Elizabeth Barrett, which is a role that I would love to tackle and would probably slash to ribbons because it's not, it's not my integral self, it's not my intrinsic self, which of course makes it a wonderful challenge for somebody like me. But you look at Norma Shearer and you look at her, the way she played Elizabeth Barrett. Well, this is, she's sickly, 
she's on a fainting couch, but this is a woman of stern stuff. This is a woman with a backbone, huge, you know, to go up against somebody like Charles Lawton, a, a personal genius as far as I'm concerned. That's just me. So you, so you can take a, a shrinking violet, you can take somebody who's a bit of a wallflower, somebody who's, who's you know, who's sickly, and, and they're incredibly strong. It depends on the vessel that's, that, that they're being channeled through. So there are tons and tons of strong roles out there. Lots of strong roles. It depends on who's playing them. I mean, a woman who is, who is, who is going through some sort of domestic, domestic violence, a, a, a domestic abuse situation on screen, you need a hell of an actress to portray that. That's a strong role, even though you are playing what would obviously so all 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 female roles can be strong women roles of course no question you mentioned charles lawton i do remember a role he played where he was a busker in london mm -hmm. and it stayed mm -hmm. in my mind my father loved uh, walter houston uh, walter houston sang September song on a film, he could not sing, but he sang it and my father wept. And I did as well because my father wept. But if you can ask- you, if Can you, you ask, act the talent that you feel you don't naturally have? Because the character doesn't know that they can't sing. That's a marvelous way to put it. Character, character doesn't know that they can't sing uh, and and, even if they, even if the character, Walter Houston's character said, said, oh, you know what, I can't sing. There's a reason he's singing. And the reason has to outweigh his fear of sounding awful. Simple as that. So there's, so there's, there's you, there is, there is, there's the driving force. The stakes are obviously very high for him to have sung. So it's, it's one of those two. Character doesn't know that they can't sing or can't do something, can't climb that mountain, and so therefore they, 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 they ascend to the top. Or the reason to get to the top is far more, far more important than, than whatever fear they have of, of climbing the mountain. To some degree, this is becoming a reflection of a master class. What, <laughs> advice, what advice would you give to that ingenue who sits in front of you and says, my God, you've done so much. What should I remember that you said? You, you should remember to take nothing personally because you don't know when you go into that room for an audition. I don't care if it's a musical theater audition. I don't care if it's a leading role in film. I don't care what it is. You don't know. You, you 5% of your audition, 5%. That 5% has to be operating Whirling around at hundred percent, but you only control five percent. So, so never fear. The second thing I would say is there is always another audition. And the third thing I would say uh. is actually there are four things. The third thing I would say is there is always room for everybody at the top at all times. Period. And the fourth thing I would say is that you. Act. I would. I would ask her. I would ask that the ingenue. I said, "Why are you acting? Why? Why have you chosen this this profession?" And if they say anything other than because I have to, not because I like putting on masks or I like making people laugh or or I like the money or I like the fame or whatever it is, I act because I have to. Period. And the moment you wake up and you think. I don't know that I need to do this anymore. Maybe I can go do something else. You have to immediately go do something else because this business will crack you in two and stir mm. up your insides and throw you back together. And you will become, if, if you let it, it'll break your heart how many times over. And if you are doing it for any reason other than it is your happy place, it is your bliss. It is what you have to do to feel complete and whole. And so that you, you, you inspire and you allow God, as you would understand him, her, or it to speak through you. If you would do it for any reason other than that, then, then, then leave, then leave. That's what I would say. I note that you've played a Greek born opera singer. 
you're writing about ancient Greece, obviously an American by annotation, but you play where the part takes you. There's a marvelous quote that I've often used in this program, Je suis un citoyen de la monde, I'm a citizen of the world. Do you find yourself in point of fact under no man's flag? Simply where you take the hat off, that's where you are? I am only under the flag of my, of my dogs. I, 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 am ruled, <laughs> I, am, I am ruled by them. I have four dogs and one cat, and they, they, they hoist the banner every single morning, and I just salute. <laughs> um, I would like to think I'm under no man's flag. Absolutely. I would like to, I, would like to I, I do attempt in all things to lead a fearless life, and I fail as we all do because I am in a corporeal form, because I am in a human body. And, and there are times when I really kind of need to go, okay, you know what, I, 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 that frightens me a little bit. I shouldn't go over there. Sometimes I just go over there anyway and I barge through. But I attempt in all things to lead a fearless life. And again, sometimes, you know, we don't. But it's in. But the nobility is in the attempt, is always in the attempt. Nobility is also in the result, but nobility is always in the attempt, because you you keep trying and you fail, and then you try again and you fail better, and you try again and you fail again, and you fail until you finally go, oh, oh okay, I'm now succeeding. I'm now succeeding. How the- important to you, Carolyn, is your charitable work? Huge. Huge. And it's and it's it's my advocacy work on behalf of animals is well, like a third a third leg of the stool. So it's it's because and boy I could I could talk your ear off <laughs> I could talk your ear off about that. Um, yes, advocate as opposed to activist, and the 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 differences were are are, are very clear to me. And which I will, I will be happy to share with you. Um, an activist uh, does not understand the necessity for modern zoos and aquariums for preservation and conservation. Uh, and again, this is very general, very broad strokes. Okay, uh, and and wants to see you know zoos and aquariums closed and everyone walking down Main Street with the animals hand in hand. And that's not going to happen. An advocate understands that we need them. Humans need animals. Animals do not need humans. And in many cases would be far better off. Far better off. That we have no more wild spaces in which to cultivate populations, in which for for animals to roam free. And so we need modern zoos, modern aquariums, people who are on the front lines of preservation and conservation in case there's ever a wild space that we discover and we can re, you know, re, uh, reintroduce the population. But we're losing 150 species a day and mankind cannot afford that. And when animals go, humans are not far behind and we will lose all the great works of genius that should, mm. could inspire generations to come. It is a question of Learning to live, learning to learning to live with them, allowing them they're allowing them the space to run free, not with us, but until that time, conserving and preserving, and that's what what venues like SeaWorld. Then people 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 throw stones at SeaWorld, and I say you have no idea what SeaWorld does. You just have mm. no concept. A jail? No. When I am reincarnated, I would like to come back either as as Kalas or as an orca at SeaWorld because they're spoiled, spoiled rotten. Um, my Los Angeles Zoo, the San Diego Zoo, Georgia Aquarium—I mean, international institutions—and that's why I see things like like you know what's happening to dogs and cats in China, what's happening to most animals in China, and I just think the, that thinking has to be has to be it's it's backward and it needs to be flipped forward and that you need to understand that that they're not food and they shouldn't be treated this way or that way but of course we have so much of that going on in this country so i'm i'm you know it's like where the the problem is so overwhelming where do you focus your your efforts first so i have i or i had a, a podcast called animal magnetism and i'm actually looking for going to be once 
everyone comes out of quarantine, I'll be looking for a new home for animal magnetism. Um, and I have interviewed the greats, you know, Jungle Jack Hanna and Grace Stafford uh, um, from the Wildlife World Zoo and Aquarium in Litchfield Park, who's become a mentor. And people from Buruti Mary Galdikas, who works with, with, with orangutans. I've just interviewed everybody in an attempt to get humans to understand that animals are our brethren. They are not, they are not meant to be, you know, meant to be kicked around. <laughs> so, so I that's that. I did an investigatory interview with the Jane Goodall Foundation, and her common gripe was that her professors wanted to give the chimps numbers, and she wanted to give them names. Mm -hmm. Have you ever contemplated writing a story from the perception of another creature? Yes, yes, and and of course, anyone who knows me would tell you it would of course be from the POV of an elephant. But I would be in constant floods of tears. It would take it would it would take a great deal out of me to write that. I I I I probably will. I will mm. I will look into that a little more carefully. But it's it's the way we have treated them is circuses circuses in the past, I should say. Because if you train an element, an, an elephant, if you train any animal with positive reinforcement training, then a performance becomes a party to them because they don't have to participate if they don't want to. So I, I, I look at the way we have treated our, our animal brethren in the past and, and I think think about the way in some areas of the world we still do. And it's, it's agonizing for me, but I, but, but maybe, I mean, I can't, I can't even watch Dumbo. I can't watch the, <laughs> I can't watch it. If we may, Carolyn, time is running by. I know. I would love to leave this open and do it again at your discretion. Absolutely. You name it. I'm, I'm, I'm always here for you. I'm honored. <laughs> Our guest is Carolyn Hennessy. The program is Seldom Said. It's the place where conversation matters. And at this moment, it certainly does. Thank you, Carolyn Hennessy. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.